0: I would like to invite you to join me in the book of First Corinthians, the third chapter. We have many visitors with us this morning. We are thankful that you're here. We pray that you've already received a blessing. I I uh I, I was about to have a Holy Spirit moment over there in my seat when this when the worship singing was going on. That was a phenomenal uh thank you, Zach, for choosing those songs and um what a what a what a season of worship we had in in music this morning. And uh that was that was enough. my spirit was was strengthened in that in that time, and i 'm just thankful for that, and just being able to uh, know the Lord is with us, to feel His presence, even when things are difficult and challenging um, to know that the Lord is with us, that He has not forsaken us, He will not leave us or forsake us that he 's with us, and to think about the songs like his his faithfulness his Though our sins are many, his mercy is more. And um, those, those songs, the, the message that we were listening to and hearing is so uh, important to our Christian life, to our faith, to our walk with the Lord. And, and so I just, I just so appreciated the, the uh, singing this morning and the, the, the song choices, too. Just so uplifting and encouraging. This morning, I want to continue our series through the book of 1 Corinthians. If you're visiting with us, we're so glad that you're here. We're, we're doing a, a chapter-by-chapter study through 1 Corinthians. It's a little bit out of my normal routine. Normally, we go verse-by-verse and try to unpack verses, and because we're in somewhat of a crunch for time, we're doing chapter-by-chapter through the book, the book of 1 Corinthians, so there's a lot to cover. Um, also, the topic that we're dealing with is, right now is division in the church. And so if you're visiting with us this morning, you may say, well, that's kind of a weird topic to hear when you, when you go to a church and visit. But we're dealing with division in the church, not because we have a division in our church, but because we know that there's always a potential. And uh, the Lord gives us instruction. He gives us guidance so that we can avoid it and we can resist it with all of our strength. The church today, as a whole... Uh, in general, is a very divided organism. And uh, there are churches all over the world that are splitting and splintering as we speak. And it's always an attack that Satan puts on the church. And the reason for it is, is because the unity of the church is essential to the gospel. Uh, the unity of the church is essential to the gospel. And so that is why the Apostle Paul puts so much emphasis on the unity of the church um, because of its relation to the gospel. The first four chapters, as I mentioned already, the first four chapters of this book deal with what is likely the most serious of all crises, and that is the division in the church. The theme of this series is crisis in the church, and only one of all of the crises in the church is dealt with in four chapters, it takes up four chapters. So we will conclude, based upon the amount of information that the Apostle Paul gives us, that this is the biggest problem. This is the most significant problem in the church is division. The division that we read about in the book of 1 Corinthians is a division based upon a carnal view of life and leadership. The people of the church at Corinth were judging their leaders based upon ability and likability. They were determining their liking of a certain leader, whether it was Paul or Peter or uh, Paulus or even Jesus. They were looking at these leaders from external perspectives, looking at their talent, looking at their eloquence, looking at their abilities. And they they were making decisions on whether or not they liked their leaders based upon certain characteristics that were external characteristics. The problem with that is the Christian life is all based on the internal, is it not? The Christian life is a spiritual journey. It's not a fleshly journey. And so when we teach people that the Christian life is about what's inside of you, not what's outside of you, but yet we live that what's outside of you matters more, we're doing a disservice to the very gospel that we preach. Is that true? Amen? Get amen on that? These these people were deciding on their different likings. We could just say it, you know, Paul and Apollos and Peter and and Jesus were were co-pastors. And half the church liked one of them and the other half liked the other one, and and they were all splintered all over the place. And it wasn't based upon the fact that one of them was more spiritual than the other one. It was totally based upon something external about them. Talent, ability, or likability. Why is this division so serious? Because it undermines the foundation of the gospel. I mentioned that to you already. The gospel preached must match the life... Remember this. The gospel preached must must match the life of the church. The message that we preach must be something that we manifest and live daily in our lives. The gospel is that Christ Jesus is all-satisfying. Is that true? Is Christ all-satisfying? Is Christ all-satisfying? I know we all know the answer to that, but when we murmur and complain about somebody is externally not doing what we would like them to do or not doing it as hard as they should or not doing it as good as they should, are we saying that Christ is all-satisfying? When we need more than Christ, is Christ more satisfying? Is Christ satisfying or all-satisfying? The gospel is built upon the fact that Christ is all-satisfying. What he desires from mankind is that they embrace him as the all-sufficient Savior. Not that they embrace him plus something or minus something, but that they embrace Jesus and Jesus Christ alone. He is the all-sufficient Savior. He is the treasure of all of Christianity. Amen? Do we say that though when we murmur and complain about external things that are taking place around us? I might submit to you that we do do not display an all sufficient Savior if we live with murmuring and complaining. The gospel is not only built on the all sufficiency of Christ, it's built also on the all forgiving nature of the cross. Is there any sin that can be committed that the cross is not sufficient to save? Is there any sin that can be committed that the cross is not sufficient to forgive? Is there any? There are none. There is nothing that you could ever do that would make you unsavable because the cross of Christ is big enough to save and forgive any and all sins. Is that how we live? Is the cross sufficient for you to forgive your neighbor? Is the cross sufficient for you to forgive the person who harmed you or hurt you 20 years ago? Is the cross sufficient for you to forgive somebody who hurt you badly? Is the cross sufficient? Listen to me, folks. The cross is sufficient for all sins. We know that. Theologically. Theologically. We know that intellectually, but here's the question. Do we know that practically? How many churches divide and split because they're just simply not willing to forgive? Where's the cross in that? What do we tell people when we walk down the streets and say, Jesus can forgive you for all sins. There's no sin that you could ever commit that Jesus can't forgive you for. Come to my church where we don't forgive anybody for anything. Right? Is that, the, is that not undermining the gospel? This is why the Apostle Paul takes such energy to deal with this issue because it is destructive to the very gospel that we preach. We want people to see Jesus as all-satisfying, but we don't see Jesus as all-satisfying. We want people to see the cross as all-forgiving, but we're not all forgiving. The gospel is built on the grace of God, the last thing. The gospel is built on the grace of God being all-sufficient. The grace of God is unmerited favor. It means that I show favor to somebody in spite of the fact that they do not deserve it. Is the gospel all-sufficient? Is grace all-sufficient? Is that why I'm saved? Because God accepted me not on my own merits or being deserving, but because he simply chose to love me? Is that why I'm saved? So we preach that message, and it sounds really great, but do we live it? Can we sit across from somebody that we disagree with or we struggle with and show them extraordinary grace, the same type of grace that God shows us every day? I've often found it interesting that we, can't, we have a hard time forgiving others. We have a hard time showing others grace because maybe they have offended us to a, a whole new level. And I always say this, if you've been, you've been here for a few years, you know this statement. No one has ever offended you as much as you've offended God. Right? Right? If he can forgive you, guess what? You can forgive others. If he can show you grace... If he can show me grace, if he can show the Apostle Paul grace, right? Here's a guy who's walking around murdering his people. And yet the Lord didn't condemn the Apostle Paul. He saved him and gave him an eternal life in heaven. If Jesus can do that, folks, we as a church can do that. Amen? That's who we need to be. Why is this so serious? Why is division in the church so serious? Because it undermines the very foundation of the gospel we preach. Jesus Christ, listen to me. If you're here this morning and you're visiting, I want you to know something. Jesus Christ is all satisfying. There is no one like Jesus. If you will receive him into your life, he will transform your life like you can't believe, he will make you a new creature. If you will believe in Christ and embrace him as all-sufficient and all-satisfying, he will change your world. I will tell you, number two, that the cross is able to forgive all sins. There's no sin that the cross can't forgive. You may say, Pastor John, I've committed some pretty bad ones. Listen to me. There is no sin that the cross cannot forgive. Jesus Christ paid the full penalty for all sins. That means that he died. Death is the the ultimate penalty for crime, right? Can anybody think of a crime that requires more than death? Nothing. Death is the ultimate payment for, for, for crime, and Jesus Christ satisfied it. And there's no crime that you can bring to him and confess that he will not forgive on the basis of his cross, Man, such a great message, isn't it? It's such a great message. And I want to tell you this, grace is sufficient. God will not receive you on your own merits, but he will receive you on the merits of Christ. You can be completely undeserving. You can be completely un... It can be completely... It is completely unmerited, and the Lord Jesus Christ will welcome you into his kingdom based upon the fact that you have faith in the one who died for your sins. That's the gospel. Chapter one. That's what chapter one deals with. Chapter number two shows us that the division of the, in the church comes from an elevated view of elevated view of self wisdom. And I, I'm going to use a different word, but you'll see in, sec, in the second chapter the idea of earthly wisdom or intelligence is kind of the basis. It's like they were judging and looking at based upon what I know, what you know, and it was kind of this intellectual battle of who's more intellectual, who knows more. I want you to know something this morning. The gospel and Jesus and the church, we're not about who knows more. It's not about intellect, it's about faith. It's about walking not by sight, but by not, it's by walking not by sight, But by closing our eyes and walking in faith, it's believing in something that we can't see, trusting in something that's impossible, and then watching it happen because we know that the God behind it is capable. The division came from an elevated view of the intellect over a humble view of divine wisdom. Remember this, worldly view is intellectual and it directs God. Worldly view, uh, intellect, is what tells God what to do. Spiritual wisdom is what is humble, and it submits to God. The end of chapter number 2 says it this way in verse 16, For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him, but we have the mind of Christ. The contrast there is between understanding and submission. It's understanding intellectually the mind of the Lord in order that we might instruct him versus submitting to the mind of Christ which we have within us because he lives inside of us. Chapter 3, which is where we're at this morning, deals with seven truths about division in the church that will encourage us to avoid it and resist it. So I want to just walk through those. I was, gonna think, I was thinking about reading the whole text and then walking back through it. I thought oh, that might take too much time. So I'm just going we're going to read a, a small portion and then discuss it for a minute and 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 learn a few truths about division in the church and then go on to the next portion and we're going to make it through we're going to make it through chapter number 3 this morning, okay? So we're going to just do it in a in a fairly um, a fairly fast mode, but I just encourage you if you want to take notes, I'm just going to give you some truths from God's word that he can that can help us with this issue of division in the church which the church is dealing with all across the world, okay? We need to be guarded against it, and this church, is not, just, this church has not been free from it. We've had struggles with it for years, and, and we need to always be guarded against the challenges of it. So here's what he says. He says in verse number, we'll read verse one through four for starts. He says, but I, brother, brothers, do not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ, I fed you with milk and not with solid food for you were not ready for it and even now you are not ready for you are still of the flesh for while there is jealousy and strife among you are you not of the flesh and behaving only as humans behaving only in a human way for when one says I follow Paul and another I follow Apollos are you not being merely humans There's two things I want you to learn from this, or two things I think the Apostle Paul wants us to learn from this short portion. Number one, his division is sometimes among believers. He makes a point to to call these people believers. He calls them brothers at the beginning of the text, and he says that those who are in Christ Jesus... So the Apostle Paul is not allowing the, the, the Corinthian people to say, well, they're not believers, right? You ever heard that before? Division in the church happens and the brothers in Christ are not getting along and one side says, well, I just don't think that they're even saved, right? The Apostle Paul lets, doesn't let that uh, stay on the table. He immediately t- tells us, he immediately calls us to the understanding that these are believers Who are in conflict with each other? These are believers who are battling against each other. These are believers who are divided. Now, let me say this to you: It's not always the case that believers are at conflict with each other. There are times where um, false converts creep into the church, false prophets, and false teachers, and people who have a desire to undermine the, the gospel that creep into the church. There are times that that's the case. 1 John 2 tells us there's a group of people that ultimately finally left the church, and it says that it was because they were never in the church. In other words, they were never true believers, and they left the church because they were never really a part of it. Galatians 2 and verse 4 talks about false brothers who are secretly brought in in order to undermine the gospel. So I'm not saying it's always true that brothers are fighting against brothers, it sometimes is possible that one side is unbelieving and the other side is believing. However, in this case, the Apostle Paul makes it clear that this is brother fighting against brother. These are people who are in Christ, these are saved people. So, divisions amongst, we see in the Bible that division among believers isn't uncommon. As a matter of fact, we see a division amongst Paul and Barnabas, we see a division amongst Peter and Paul, there are several other um, partners, if you will, in the New Testament that just didn't seem like they could get along very well. So the idea of having division in the church is not uncommon, listen to me, the idea of having division in the church is not uncommon, although it is definitely inappropriate Just because something is not common does not make it right. Just because something is common does not make it right. does not make it okay. There's a lot of things that are common in our culture today because our culture is wicked. There's a lot of things that are infiltrating the church today that that ought not to be infiltrating the church because the church is falling prey to the culture. Just because something is common doesn't make it okay. It doesn't make it right. Again, whether you have Paul and Barnabas or Peter and Paul, you know, they had legitimate reasons to be in conflict together, but the conflict and the way it's handled was not appropriate. Division can happen among believers. Note this. Believers can have division in the church, but they shouldn't. We know that we're all carnal. We're all, I'm going to say, uh, we're all fleshly, we're all human beings, so we all have that side of us that we wrestle with on a regular basis that wants to be right, right? <laughs> right? <laughs> we, have a, we have that fleshly side of us that wants to be right, and it's that fleshly side of us that wants to be right that causes, that causes? Causes division, that's why, it's, that's why the intellectual piece of it here is that that's where the division comes from. Okay? So let's go on here. Number two, what we see as well in these first four verses is that God expects more from believers. Now, I'm not going to unpack the whole thing, but he talks about, he calls them several different things. He calls them unspiritual. He calls them fleshly. He calls them infants which means that they are immature they are babies they are they are childish he calls them you're just mere humans He's like, you're just acting like mere humans. So what, he, what he's saying is, is that there's more, there's more about a Christian. There's, something, there's a power that's been given to them. There's an indwelling Holy Spirit that has been put within them. You know, Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world it becomes a truth to a believer. And what the Apostle Paul is saying by the inspiration of the Spirit here is, why are you just acting like mere people? This is what the world does. Matter of fact, I was sharing with somebody the other day, I said, I don't know that we could find an organism that's more divided than the church today. Maybe our government, right? But you know something that's interesting? Maybe we're just following their suit. Maybe we're just following their lead, which is literally the opposite of what we should be doing. God expects more from his people because we are indwelt by his spirit. We're Christians. It doesn't make us better than other people. It makes us filled with the one who is better. Why are you acting like mere human beings? Why are you just acting like you're in the flesh? Why are you living like you have nothing unique That's what he says to them. God expects more from believers. He talks about the two manifestations of these acts is that they were jealous towards each other, and there was strife, contention, quarreling. And jealousy always leads to those things. Wanting more, wanting position, wanting to be right, jealousy or envy or pursuit or whatever might be the case always leads to division. It never leads to... It never leads to unity. The Lord expects more from us. Christians, church, the Lord expects more from us. The Lord expects more from you. The Lord expects more from me. He has given you his spirit. He has died on the cross for your sins. He has made you a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. Amen? Are we who we used to be? Are we we you who we used to be? right? We're forgiven, we're sanctified, we're justified, amen? All those things are true about us. Listen to me. The Lord expects more from us. The Lord expects more from us. We we don't just live like the world anymore. We are now in the world, according to John 17, but we're not of the world. It is not that which dominates us. The Lord expects more from us as Christians. We need to stop being merely human, And be more. Let's go on. Verse five down to verse number nine. He says, What then is Paul, is is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believe, that's the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters, that would be Paul and Apollos, right? or we could put our, whole, our ourselves into that picture because we plant and we water. It says, neither he who plants nor he who waters is, what's the next word? Is anything. It's a pretty strong statement, isn't it? He who plants and he who waters, does they don't matter at all. They don't matter at all. Man, if we could learn that. We could get the humility that comes along with that. But God who gives the growth, so neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his reward according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers, you are God's field, you are God's building. A few things that he says here about the church, and this is, the, if you're taking notes, the church is to be all about Christ note that. This is what verse 5 through 9 are telling us. The church is to be all about Christ. The church is to be all about Christ. It's not to be about John, it's not to be about Michael, it's not to be about Ed, it's not to be about Joe, it's to be about Christ. The church is to be about Christ. Who is John? He is nobody. Who is Michael? He is nobody. Who is Ed? He is nobody. Who, Who are we? We are nobody. It's about Christ, when we elevate Christ to his proper position and we see him for who he is and we allow ourselves to be, to be brought low to see who we are, we will then be unified and united. This is why John the Baptist says, he must increase, but I must decrease. May I submit to you that they don't happen separate from each other. Christ will never increase in the life of somebody who is increased but only in the life of somebody who has decreased. Colossians 1.18 says, and he is the head of the body, the church. Speaking of Christ, he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. Three things he says about us in this text. Number one, we are nothing. We must realize the significance of Christ's if we're going to realize the significance of Christ, we must accept the insignificance of man. We are like those who plant and water but have no ability to give life. We are useless without the life-giving power of God. You ever witness to somebody that the Lord didn't awaken? And it was like talking to a brick wall, and you just there was no response. It's, it seems worthless, doesn't it? Because it is worthless unless the life-giving power of God comes within them. It is worthless without the power of the Holy Spirit. It doesn't mean we don't do it. Because we're called to do it. We're commissioned to do it. We do it because we love to tell people about Jesus. But listen to me. It's useless unless we are, unless the Spirit of God becomes the empowerer of life. Who says we are nothing. He says, number two, we are one. Whether you plant or whether you water, you are One. The body of Christ is one with many members, being different. Each member is different, but each member is, 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 is working towards a oneness so that the, it might uplift Christ. Remember this about the body of Christ. No one in the body of Christ is more important and no one is less important. I want you to get that with me this morning. You're not more important than somebody else and they're not less important than you are. I think sometimes we elevate people's financial status, intellectual status. We elevate people. We, we scale people based upon where they're at in life and what their struggles are. Maybe they have more struggles. Maybe they are, are more prone to addiction than somebody else. And we scale people based upon that. And we look down on people who have more struggles. And we look up to people who have less struggles. In the body of Christ, listen, that is not how it's supposed to be. That does not promote the gospel that Jesus Christ presents to us. No one is more important, no one is less important. No one is better and no one is worse. No one is more and no one is less. 1 Corinthians 12, 12, For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. And then he closes this portion out with this in verse number 9. He says, For we are all fellow workers, God's field and God's building, The last thought of this point is we are helpers, we are helping God, we are are partnering with him and doing his work, but we are also the ones who are being helped. The church labors together with Christ, but the church is also the field that is being cultivated, and the church is also the building that is being built. Let us never forget that while we labor with Christ, we are also being labored on by Christ. Christ. Let us never forget that while we labor with Christ, we are also being labored on by Christ. We need not just be doing the work of the Lord, but we need to be having the work of the Lord done on us. Some of us get really in that role where we've reached some certain levels in our mind of intellectualism and, and man, we're just elevated and we just stop growing. Because we've arrived. What <laughs> use is there to grow? God needs me now. And then the church becomes about me. Do you know what a church that comes, becomes about me, what happens to a church that becomes about me? Do you know what God is good at doing? God is good at making it about him again. And a church that becomes about me will often go through great heartache so it can become about him. And you know something? We want it to be about him because it's worthless if it's not about him. It's worthless. We are building on, a, uh, this is the next thought. Number, f- I believe number four or, or three, four, We are building on another's foundation. Walk with me through it, It says this in verse number 10. According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it, for no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Christ Jesus. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stone, wood, hay, or stubble, each work will become manifest. Know this, that the church is building on another foundation. The foundation is Jesus Christ. It was laid by the apostles, and we are now being called to build upon it. The church is building upon the foundation of Christ, which was laid by God and the apostles. We are not building on a foundation that we have laid. We're building upon a foundation that someone else has laid. And the apostle Paul says, be careful how you build on the foundation of Jesus Christ. Be careful how you build. And just think about it this way. The foundation of our salvation is Jesus Christ, and we're building the building that is what people see. You know, people don't see foundations. What they see is they see the building, right? So we're the the part that people see. We're built on Christ, and we're building on Christ, and we're the part people see. He says, be careful what you build on Christ. The foundation of Christ is so important that there must be caution placed on what we build with on it. Two materials are mentioned here for building on this foundation of Christ gold, silver, precious stone, which represent spiritual materials, eternal materials, spiritual materials, biblical materials. Wood, hay, and stubble represent fleshly materials, temporary things, intellectual materials. The Bible tells us, lay not up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust and corrupt and thieves break through and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. In other words, build upon the foundation of Christ, build upon that foundation with spiritual materials, not carnal materials. I've I've heard people say, well, Jesus died for my sins so I can do this and this and this. And they think that Jesus died so that they could have ultimate freedom to live live out all of their fleshly desires. And it's very possible that they are saved and the foundation has been laid, but they're building on that foundation wood, hay, and stubble, which is ultimately going to be burnt up. And others say, Jesus died for my sins so that I can share the gospel with other people, so that I can love other people, so that I can no longer be angry with other people, so that I can forgive other people, so that I can be joyful in life, so that I can do all these spiritual things. Now I'm building on the foundation of Christ with spiritual things. Gold, silver, and precious stones. Remember, you're building on another's foundation. You're not building on your own. Number five, verse 12 through 15 says this each one's, verse 13, each one's work will become manifest for the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though himself will be saved, but as only through fire. Number five, simply this. What we build with is the basis of our reward. What we build with is the basis of our reward. It is not how we build. It is not how well we build. It is not even what we build. What is mentioned here is what material are you using to build on the Cross of Christ, on the foundation of Christ. What material are you building with spiritual material or are you building with fleshly material? And your work will be, will be exposed one day. The Bible says it'll be, if you can imagine a big furnace there and you throw wood, hay, and stubble into it, and what comes out? Comes out ashes. You know, if it's hot enough, not very much comes out. You throw gold, silver, and precious stones into a very hot fire, and what comes out? gold silver and precious stones and they're purified through that fiery process we are rewarded we are rewarded not for how beautiful of a thing we build on the on the foundation of christ we're rewarded for the material that we build upon the foundation of christ it's like, what are you using to build on that foundation? What is the foundation of Jesus dying for your sins, showing you amazing grace and mercy and loving and embracing you and being all satisfying to you? What, what are you building on that? Is it just carnality? Well, now I can live however I want to live. Or is it, I can, I can store up treasures in heaven now. I can witness to my neighbor. I can be set free from addiction. I can be free from temptation. I can overcome What you build with is a basis of your reward. Remember, this is not a question of salvation. It's a question of rewards. What you do with your salvation will be judged and rewarded. Do not take Christ's work and build fleshly on it. If you do, you will suffer loss, yet you yourself will be saved. But rather, take Christ's work and build spiritual things on it, and then you will be rewarded. Remember, Jesus didn't die so that you could live for your flesh. He died so that you could live spiritually and that you could die to your flesh. Listen to what Galatians 6, 7, and 8 says this. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit Will from the Spirit reap everlasting life. Do you know what these are? These are natural laws. I could almost put into this verse, if you you step off of a building, gravity will grab you and pull you down. That's what this is. It's a natural law. God says if you sow to your flesh, you will reap corruption. If you sow to your Spirit, you will reap everlasting life. It's not earning your salvation. This is not a salvific verse. It's a verse that's dealing with rewards. It's a verse that's dealing with how you live your life. Let's go on. This gets a little bit more serious in verse 16 and 17. It says, Do you not know that you are God's temple? Speaking to the church here. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's temple, God's Spirit dwells in you? Listen to this. If anyone destroys God's temple, and what's that word? What other word can we put in there other than destroy based upon the context of what we're reading here? If anyone divides God's church, that's what he's saying here. If anyone divides or destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy and you are that temple. God's temple, God's church, is what he's referring to here, God's church is holy. I want you to think about this with me for a moment. What he is saying is the holiness of God is, is directly paralleled to the unity of the church. And when the church is divided, the holiness of God is undermined. You ever think about that? You ever been in a church that was being divided and you thought, you know something, we are undermining the holiness of our God. I imagine that very few of us ever thought about that when we were going through a division in the church. Matter of fact, I would submit to you that probably many of us, or most of us, when we go through division in the church, think about God very little, other than the God that we create with our own mind, who is on our own team, who thinks like we do, talks like we do, believes like we do, and thinks that we're right about everything. And that would be called a, an idol, thank you. (laughs) That would be called an idol. An idol. The church is the temple of God. He is the one. He lives within each individual. He gifts individuals with spiritual gifts for the benefit of the whole, and he works through the whole for the glory of himself. A divided church hinders the holiness of God's temple. Remember this. The holiness of God's temple is manifest in his oneness. The holiness of God is manifested in his oneness. Can you imagine how holy God would be if Jesus and the Father and the Spirit were up in heaven fighting over how things were? Well, I think we should have purple carpet, Lord. It's like, well, you know something? I think it should be red. Would we see that as holy? We wouldn't, would we? This is what he's saying here. The holiness of God is, is, is reflected in his unity, in his harmony together. A divided God is not a holy God. In the same way, the church's holiness is manifest in its oneness. In a divided church, I'm gonna say it, please don't be offended, a divided church is not a holy church. We gotta get our heads around this stuff, folks. We got a long, long journey ahead of us. If the Lord tarries we got a long journey ahead of us. We gotta put, got put some walls up and know that Satan's gonna attack us in every way in every way he possibly can. We've got to stay humble. The last thought is found in the last five or so verses. I just put it this way: I, I titled it, Be Serious About Unity. He says, Let no one deceive you. If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is folly with God. For it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. So let no one boast in men, for all things are ours, are yours. Whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours. And you are Christ and Christ is God's. In the end, he says simply this, do not be deceived that carnal wisdom Do not be deceived that carnal wisdom will lead to unity. It won't. Do not think that carnal wisdom or intellect will lead to unity. It never does. If you have a church of people that everyone thinks that they're right, you can can mark it down. You can mark my words. It will be divided at some point. He says this. If you think yourself wise, here's what he says. Here's his advice. If you think yourself wise, Become a, somebody tell me, become a fool. If you think yourself wise, become a fool. Because your thoughts of yourself are what's going to divide the church. If you think yourself wise, become a fool. A carnal man thinks himself wise. A spiritual man would never think himself wise But in humility, he rests in the wisdom of the Spirit and the Word. And we looked at that in the last chapter, the last verse of the last chapter. He says, never boast in men. Never boast in men. And then he says, have no jealousy or friction because all is yours in Christ. The last verse is just simply that. Remember, everything is yours. It's like when you you have... What causes division in the church was when people want. When people want, it's because they don't, it's because they don't what? If I want, it's because I don't have. And when I find that I have everything that I need in Christ, everything is mine in Christ. All of the things that I ever could need or imagine, as a matter of fact, in chapter number two, it says, you can't even imagine the things that God has prepared for those who love Him. When I have Christ, I have everything that I could ever need or ever imagine or ever desire. The problem isn't that I don't have what I need and desire. The problem is I haven't yet accepted that I have what I need and what I desire. That's why he says at the end of this, he says he says, You have everything. Paul is yours. You're fighting over Paul and Apollos and Cephas. They're all yours. They're all part of the same team. We're all working together. We're all one. So instead of fighting over which one you get, you get them all. He says all are yours and you are Christ's and Christ is God's. And that's how we that's how we win over division in the church. The church united by Christ. The church is united by Christ's sanctification or uh, the church is united by Christ's satisfaction, forgiveness, and grace. When united, we reflect his character and are rewarded. When divided, we we distort his character, forfeit our reward, and destroy his temple. Church. Let us pray together that God humbles us and unites us so that we can give the world an opportunity to know Christ accurately. If you're here this morning and you're visiting with us, you may see this as kind of an odd sermon, but I want you to know that the church in America has done a poor job of reflecting well on Christ We have, and we want to apologize for it. If there's somebody in here that has not gone to church for years or somebody in here who doesn't know Christ, we want you to know that he's better than what we reflect him to be. He's greater than what we reflect him to be. He's more faithful than what we reflect him to be. He's more satisfying than what we reflect him to be. He's more forgiving than what we reflect him to be. He's more gracious than what we reflect him to be. And we want you to know that. We want you to go to Jesus. We want you to be saved by Jesus. We want you to know Jesus in a very special way. And we know that we've done a bad job of letting you know him. Church, you should know that God expects more of you. We're empowered by his spirit. His spirit lives inside of every one of us. and He expects us to reflect him to the world around us. He wants us to display his glory so that others might know him. That the visitors that are here with us this morning might know Jesus because of how we treat each other. It's true, that's what the Lord wants from us. He is way better than we often portray him to be. My encouragement to you this week is simply this. When you go home, open your Bibles. Amen? Open your Bibles and read and you will find a perfect expression of Christ. Open your Bibles and read and you will find a perfect expression of Christ. Go to him, he will forgive you He will save you. He will deliver you. And then when you're done doing that, come back to this church next week and we will start a journey together and we will learn from each other on how to properly reflect our Savior. You will never go to a church that's perfect, but by God's grace, we want to be a church that's growing. And I'm not talking about numerically. I'm talking about spiritually. We want to reflect Christ well, and we know that we're a far cry from it. So God help us, and I pray that you who are here visiting this morning would know Christ through his word and would join us in helping us to reflect him rightly. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much for the strength and the abilities, the Um, wisdom that you imparted to us when you came to live within us, and we pray, Lord, that we would take our responsibility to live before your, in your world and before your people as unified, as a reflection of your unity, as a reflection of your holiness, as a reflection of your forgiveness and, and grace and satisfaction. If there's anyone in here this morning that's not a believer, I pray that you would Bring them to yourself today. Help them to know that Jesus is satisfying, forgiving, and gracious. Please um, don't let these thoughts fall on deaf ears. Take them and change lives with them, if you would, please, Lord, in Jesus Christ's name.